0: You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson animal advocate, writer, and human companion to Max A. Pooch, canine crusader for animals and the environment. Max and I thank you for joining us, and we dedicate this episode as we dedicate every episode to those amazing people who work to save the lives and or improve conditions of companion, domestic, or wild animals. The spine-tingling sound of a wolf howling is perhaps the most known and most iconic noise made by any animal on Earth. Yet, perhaps more myths and misunderstandings surround this animal than any other species. Today's guest, Kent Weber, is co-founder and executive director of Mission Wolf. He has spent the past two decades as an educator working to provide a home for rescued animals. The fruit of his hard work is a unique place that connects people with nature while providing a home for rescued wolves, wolf hybrids, and horses. We'll meet Kent in a few moments and learn about Mission Wolf and the work Kent, his colleagues, and volunteers are doing to help educate people and improving relationships between people and animals. But first, a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned.
1: Introducing the new Brett Michaels Pets Rock collection exclusively at PetSmart. I created it for the pets that rock your world. Shop the Bret
0: Michaels Pets Rock collection and celebrate PetSmart's 25th anniversary with up to 25% off thousands of items on the PetSmart site, plus free shipping on orders of $49 or more. Go to PetSmartDeal.com. That's PetSmartDeal.com. P-E-T-S-M-A-R-T-D-E-A-L.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. I'm Keith Sanderson, your host, and our guest today is Kent Weber, Executive Director of Mission Wolf. Welcome, Kent. Thank you
1: for joining us. I appreciate you having me today, and I look forward to sharing uh, some information about wolves with all your listeners.
0: Well, that's great, because there probably isn't a sound that is as synonymous with the untamed wilderness than that of the wolf's howl. Yet this symbol of the wild was driven to all but complete extinction in the 48 states. Can you share with us just what is Mission Wolf, where you're located, and when you were founded?
1: Yeah, well, basically, Mission Wolf is just a solar-powered nature center. We take care of wolves that, unfortunately, were already born in a cage. Uh, these are wolves that people got as a pet, or they used it as a movie. They had it in a zoo. and. The zoo went bankrupt or whatever problem happened. They couldn't handle the wolves anymore. So we simply thought if you're a wolf in a cage, you ought to have one thing, a big place to live. So we created a sanctuary. And we figured uh, that because humans are so afraid of wolves, and sadly, wolves are just terrified of humans, we try to locate the wolves as far from humans as possible. So it's a 15-mile rough dirt road drive off a little highway up in the mountains of Colorado. And what we found there is that by making the wolves happy, it makes people happy. And you're right. The sound of the wolf is unique. It will stop any person in their tracks. I watch tears well up daily. I watch people just have magical reactions when they hear that sound. It touches deep in the soul.
0: You provide sanctuary for both wolves and hybrid wolf dogs, is that right?
1: Yeah, our society and humans seem to be a little confused today, and uh, we kind of named Mission Wolf after that old show. You could say Mission Impossible. And uh, the thing that I started finding is that when a wolf was born in a cage, they're so imprinted by humans, they don't have a chance to go back to the wild. If you did turn them loose, they would simply run up to somebody, wag their tail, and probably be shot in a few hours. So that was the first thought: was to keep a wolf happy in captivity. That seemed like an impossible job, and then the the biggest thing, I grew up in the woods, I grew up in northern Idaho and in Colorado and have spent much of my life out in the woods with animals except wolves. They were extinct, and it just didn't seem that our government was doing anything right to get wolves back. So I kind of got irritated with a couple of them, and we found a wolf that was not so afraid of humans. This was a social captive wolf that we rescued. And I took the wolf right into the federal building and met a whole bunch of federal employees. And that's when I learned that I can talk about these animals till I'm blue in the face. I can tell you that they don't make pets. I can tell you that when you cross a wolf with a dog, You don't get an animal that looks like a wolf and acts like a dog. That's what everybody wants. I can tell you that wolves uh, start a cascade in the forest, and they make the elk and the deer strong. But what I've learned is none of this makes any sense till you get a chance to have a personal experience and as soon as those federal agents look down at those yellow eyes and that big head of the wolf looking at them, of course they sat still real quick, <laughs> they <laughs> get bet. nervous and we shake hands if you and I were to greet each other and we liked each other I we'd give each other a hug well, wolves don't shake hands, they round their nose on each other's nose, they sniff each other's teeth and they look at each other's eyes so when we bring the wolves in and they get a chance to interact with humans we don't tell the wolves what to do or what not to do because we're not wolves. We don't dominate them. We don't submit to them. We just let them do their natural thing. And when a wolf comes up and plants its nose on a human's nose and looks at that human in the eye, the human, they weren't one to sit calm. Uh, That's the first thing that animals do is they teach us to be quiet, calm and respectful. All the arguments go away and I've had ranchers, I've had politicians, I've had gang members off of uh, inner city streets come up and have the exact same reaction. Oh my gosh, that animal just scanned me. It interrogated me. It knows how I feel. It's a haunting situation to be in. But it's one that teaches respect and provides a lot of calmness for a lot of humans. It's very interesting how this interaction uh, reacts in people.
0: Yeah, that sounds like uh, you really get people's attention. But speaking of that, you know, some people believe that if adopted at an early age, wolf puppies or wolf dog hybrids when grown will be just like having a dog. Is that true?
1: Well, you know, there's always an exception. There are some dogs that are just so miserable around humans, they just don't make good pets at all, and there are a couple wolves out there that are unique, they've got a low flight reaction, they're not terribly afraid of people, but the biggest difference is domestic means one thing, to please us or to make us happy, and a dog loves to be petted on the head. Not because a dog likes a little kid slapping it on the head all day, but we have taught the dog through domestication that we like to pet it. So a dog is very eager to please its human owner, master, if you want to call it that, where a wild animal, especially a wolf, they have absolutely no reason to please anyone. They do what they want, when they want, how they want and the difference is is a wolf, when it's a baby, acts just like a dog puppy. When a wolf matures at about two to three years of age, it's kind of like you and I hitting 20, 25, 30 years of age. The mortgage, the insurance, the kids, you've got to be a provider, you've got to be a protector. You don't have the ability to play around all day anymore. And this is what we see different with a dog. When a dog is 16 years old and fully grown, its behavior is identical to a wolf puppy. So basically, dogs are like wolf puppies that never grow up. And sadly, when people get a wolf or a wolf dog and the animal matures, all of a sudden they've got an animal that has no need to please them. And if you understand communication, you might live a coexistent life like you would with a friend, but you're certainly not going to be able to tell this animal what to do, when to do, how to do it, and that just infuriates humans, and sadly, it almost always ends with a dead animal, usually about the time they mature.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't recall the name of the program, I think it was on PBS, That that's where I first came across your organization. Oh, I know, it was with uh, Cesar Milan, and they were working with people with wolf-dog hybrids, and You know, people had these and really loved them, but didn't realize that they were really being cruel to them by not giving them room, expecting them to be like dogs. And then terrible things would happen. They get loose and might have to be put down because they got loose too many times. And that's where they mentioned uh, your organization and the fact that uh, you not only wolves, but you also have uh, wolf dog hybrids with you. You don't keep those together in in the same groups, do you?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. There's a lot of, lot of conflict, even in adamant animal lovers, between the wolf and the wolf dog. And, you know, to be honest, in my point of view, I don't think the wolf dog really knows or cares how much wolf or how much dog it is. And I found humans that, oh, as long as we had a pure wolf, that was okay. But if we were going to try to rescue a wolf dog, why should we do that? That was, a, as they said, a bastard animal. They were like prejudiced to it. And what I started finding out is that there are some wolf dogs that definitely have a little dog trace of ancestry, but in their behavior, you don't know it. They look like a wolf, they act like a wolf, and they basically need to be treated like a wolf. And there are some you know, wolf-dog crosses that come out looking wolfy and acting doggy, which is, of course, what everybody wants. And i got to say that, to be honest, there are some really good owners that have provided some wolf dogs and some captive wolves a great future and a great home. But The majority of the animals that are in this situation, they suffer, they end up being confined, they don't get their social needs met, and sadly, they oftentimes end up dead even before they mature.
0: You were talking about the different kind of wolf, and, and that is sad. And then would there be a wolf dog that looks mostly like a dog
1: but acts like a wolf? And that might. Be oh, my gosh. <laughs> I've got some that are a police confiscation, and get this one. A guy bred a wolf with a pit bull. And we have wolf pit bull crosses. They are the most confused animal I think I've ever dealt with. And here's the big difference, and this is something I think is so important. Wild animals do not, especially a wolf, do not see humans as food. They're scared to death of us. And a wild wolf up in Yellowstone Park, I've known some of the researchers up there, they have to go out and put a radio collar on the wolf's neck. And if you've ever thought about that proposition, what it takes to go catch a wild wolf in a leg hold trap, they set the traps so it doesn't hurt the wolf's leg, they hope. When they come up to the wolf, of course, the wolf's sitting there going, oh my God, scared to death, here comes this creature, I'm trapped. And they get a little snarly, a little growly, which is what you'd expect. But here's where things change. As the human approaches the wolf, the wolf goes into shock. It looks at the human like, oh my God, you're this giant alien. What are you going to do? And the wolf literally falls on its side and goes into shock or a trance. The researchers have been able to, without tranquilizers, just simply put a towel over their eyes handle the wolf, put the collar on the wolf, draw blood from the wolf, measure the wolf, weigh the wolf, and the wolf just lays there in shock. Now, here's the interesting thing. If the researchers were to fall on the wolf, for example, the wolf would probably reach around, bite him, and go, get off of me, and take off running to get away. And that's what's called a fear bite. Almost all animals in the wild operate on a fear bite. They don't want to attack us. They just want us to leave them <laughs> alone and run away. And here's the difference in a dog. We have taught dogs to attack and kill dogs. I mean, they literally do it every day. And we've gone as far as to teach dogs to attack and kill people. And I think the Humane Society of the United States put out a statistic that a dog attacks a person somewhere around every 30 seconds. Somebody goes to the hospital in the United States And every three weeks, a person is killed by a domestic dog. So here's the conflict. You mix a wolf that's got a large mind, independent, very, very strong, with a dog that has no fear of humans and an aggressive attitude, and you can get a time bomb. And, of course, what everybody wants is that docile dog behavior with that beautiful wolf appearance. So I don't think it really helps the dog to breed it to a wolf, and it certainly doesn't help the wolf to breed it to a dog. But the reality is there's a lot of these animals in existence, and we need to teach people how to take care of them better. That's kind of what Mission Wolf's job is.
0: About how many do you estimate there are that are in captivity, either wolves or wolf hybrids?
1: Well, this is kind of, you know, the sad indicator of what we've done to wolves in the wild. If you looked back in our history, you had over 2 million wild wolves, 48 states. They lived here for 100,000 years. And as human settlers came across the country 100 years ago, we started wiping out wolves, and we killed almost 2 million of them, they expect. We were down to 200 wild wolves, that was it, left in the United States. Well, by the time the 40s came around, the people in the cities were sad. They were out of wildlife. So what they did is they started making concrete zoos. They put the big you know, African lion and the big bear and the gorilla... And, of course, people enjoyed seeing the animals in these zoos, but soon people felt sad for the animals. So as the 60s came around, we got kind of, you could say, the environmental movement. And the zoos started making bigger homes, nicer, more natural homes. And at the same time, we had now destroyed wildlife everywhere across the War 48. And Americans were starting to get, I don't know if you want to call it a little arrogant, but they were starting to go, if I like it, I should buy it. And now we've been telling our kids to get involved in nature, own a piece of the wild wolf puppy for sale. And by 1980, we estimate there was at least a quarter million wolves in zoos, in cages, wildlife parks, roadside parks, and and mom-and-pa parks. And those people started breeding their wolves with dogs And by the late 80s, early 90s, we estimate an additional quarter million wolf dogs in captivity. Now, the Humane Society thinks there's a few more. They estimate up to a half million in the United States. But regardless, however you say it, I think there's one reason to have a wolf in a cage, and that's to teach people why wolves should not be in cages. And the end result, the day that Mission Wolf is successful with their educational program, will be the day that sanctuaries like Mission Wolf are obsolete because people don't need to uh, give up their homeless pet animal. And places like Yellowstone and Rocky Mountain Park and all the other amazing wild areas we have left in our country will be places where people can go learn and see wolves, not in a cage. I don't know if we'll see that in our lifetime, but that's sure our dream and our goal.
0: So you want to put yourself out of
1: business. That would be ideal. The day that I do not have to uh, keep a wolf in a cage will be a very happy day. And that's why we put the land at Mission Wolf in the name of the wolves, so that no matter what happened to the people, the wolves would always have a place. And we hope that maybe someday down the future, people can come to Mission Wolf, and there won't be fences anymore. We'll have taken the fences out because this need will be gone, and we will use the area as a you know, facility where people can come learn, enjoy, and hear and see maybe wild wolves in their natural environment. We've got a lot of work to do to get to that
0: point. Yeah, it sounds it. Uh, We need to take a break right now for a word from the great people who helped bring Max A. Pooch to our audience. And we'll be right back, and Kent will explain to us what the trophic, that's T-R-O-P-H-I-C, trophic cascade is, and how top predators such as wolves affect it. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Jeff Werber from Ask the Vets
0: with Dr. Jeff here on Pet Life Radio. We want to hear from you. Listen in. We're on every Thursday, 1 o'clock Pacific Time, 4 o'clock Eastern Time here on PetLifeRadio.com. We are here for you. We're trying to make life with your pets even better. I know it's hard to believe that can it even be better than it is, and hopefully it's fantastic already. The goal here is to answer your questions, help you out with your problems, anything you really wanted to know, but maybe you're afraid to ask your veterinarian, or maybe it was just too expensive to go to your veterinarian just to ask a few simple things so that's what you got me for here at pet life radio ask the vets with dr jeff call in we'll see you here on thursdays let's talk pets let's talk pets on pet life radio pet life radio pet life dot com Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson, and Kent Weber, our guest, is going to explain what the Trophic Cascade is and how predators such as wolves affect it. What is a Trophic Cascade, Kent?
1: Well, that's a really good question. We ask this to kids all the time, and oh my gosh, the answers just go around. Us humans are not good sometimes with our language. So, Trophic is T-R-O-P-H-I-C. And it means a trophic level or a level of energy. So when we work with kids, we simply explain it like this. You know, birds are one level of life. Trees, they're another level. Amphibians are yet another level. Grasses and plants are another level of life. And humans, of course, were one of those levels. So that's what trophic is. It's different levels of life. And the cascade, well, that's pretty easy. You can ask any child what a cascade is, and they say, well, it's like a waterfall. The water goes off the edge, it hits a rock, and what does it do? It splashes and goes down to more rocks. It hits those rocks and splashes again. So a cascade is kind of like a pyramid, but the thing that's unique, it starts from the top. So this is the biggest thing that we have learned from wolves in Yellowstone. Here's what they did in Yellowstone. They killed all the wolves back in the 1920s. And uh, everybody at that time thought the only good wolf was a dead wolf. It was because we were confused. We didn't understand them. And sadly, once we killed wolves, here's what a lot of people don't recognize. We also killed the bison. We killed the elk. We killed the deer. And we killed the antelope. And most of North America was really void of all these prey animals And the predators were still there, and the mountain lions and the bears and the wolves were running out of food. Now, not only was it bad enough that the humans killed all the predators, but at the same time, we filled the fields full of cows and sheep. And, of course, you know what happened there. The wolves and the bears and cats, they started having fun catching cows. They actually became pretty good at it. So humans got mad at that, and we got pretty darn good at catching wolves. Well, once we killed them all, here's what really happened. The elk stopped running, and all that happened is the elk in Yellowstone, well, they didn't have anything chasing them anymore, the ones that were left, so they started eating all the grass, and they had a lot of babies, and their baby elk started eating more grass, and pretty soon the grass was gone, and the elk were just standing still. They didn't move, so instead of starving, they started eating the baby tree buds right along the creeks, aspens, cottonwoods, and willows. And it only took a few years before all the trees had all the baby buds completely taken off and the trees couldn't grow anymore. So for about 50 years, that's what happened. The elk sat there eating everything. The trees, well, they turned into either 60 foot tall or two foot tall and we lost all the middle range trees. The elk stood on the grass, they compacted the grass, we didn't have any more groundwater left. And what we've now learned is those creeks have dried up two miles in 60 years simply because we killed the wolves now the guys that were doing the work on the aspens and the cottonwoods these are researchers out of oregon state they had been working at this for years they could not figure out why the trees were being so decimated they didn't see that it was the elk eating at the time all they knew was that the trees and the water were disappearing they were just going away and all of a sudden in the middle of their study their data started changing And the next spring, they came out, and they had three-foot-tall trees instead of two-foot, and they were full of baby tree buds. And it only took 15 years, Keith, that as soon as the wolves were put in Yellowstone, guess what the wolves made the elk do? One thing. Move. Run. Yeah. And as soon as those elk started running, the baby trees hit 15 feet tall in just a few years. Today, they're over 30 feet tall. Well, all of a sudden, in five years, we had 50 species of songbirds come back and return to the trees because they had a place to nest again. And here's the big kicker, is when the wolves chase the elk, the wolves get those elk running so fast that the elk now, they're a lot healthier and stronger for one, but here's the biggest thing they do. The elk aerate the ground. Those holes that their hooves push in the ground now collect water. And when the water comes down, the ground starts holding more water. And the next thing, the grass started growing like crazy. And the biggest thing that wolves do, they make elk run. The trees grow. And now guess what the trees are doing on a hot, sunny day? They put shade on the ground. First time in 70 years that the trees are shading the grass. The grass has more groundwater retention. And the next thing we know, we have a cascade that has been started by the wolf That's allowing the trees to grow. The songbirds are coming back. The grass is coming back. But the biggest part is that cold, fresh water that's being held in the ground is now providing the creeks and the fish with cold water. Well, the next thing that we started finding is as soon as the elk were on the move, the willows started coming back around the creeks. They had been completely taken out by the elk. And now that the willows are back, we have beavers returning. Only took 10 years From the time we restored the wolf that the beaver returned. And with the beaver in a creek, you have more fish, more amphibians, more insects, more food for the birds than you have in any other known environment. The next thing that we found, and this is something people in the United States really need to catch on, is once we killed the wolves, coyotes became the big dog of the forest. Well, now we got coyotes everywhere. They're in L.A., they're in New York, they're in Chicago... And the thing about coyotes is they're loners, they're independent, they can learn to adapt around humans. Well, back out in the woods, if a coyote gets too close to a wolf, the wolf thinks they're like a trespasser and the wolf just simply kills them. So as soon as we took the wolves out, coyotes' populations went off the charts. And now that we've got wolves back in Yellowstone, the wolves have killed up to 80% of the coyotes, which simply means that all the rabbits and all the squirrels that these coyotes have been eating for the last 50 years are now available for birds of prey. Raptors, eagles, and hawks get to have a better diet. We're now seeing a recovery in badgers, in fishers, in weasels. Many, many different species are all benefiting because the wolf starts a cascade. And the bottom end of this, if we could get politicians to listen to the science, and the good science that some of these scientists have come up with, we could show a politician that a wolf will give a rancher cold, fresh water, that a wolf will provide an environment that eats up more greenhouse gas and puts out more fresh oxygen than any known environment on land. And yet, sadly, today, there's so much misinformation out there, and politicians, they don't listen to good science. They listen to popular belief Things like what you and I are talking about right now. So that's kind of why Mission Wolf tries to take good science, put it into popular belief, so that hopefully your listeners today will go tell their politicians that a wolf starts a cascade. It's going to help everybody. And uh, one of the neatest things about this is we have found now that a creek or a forest that has a wolf in it will produce 200 to 400% more life than a creek or a forest without a wolf. If we have any interest in preserving this area for the future of our children, I think the first thing you do is you get wolves back to many areas where they're absent right now.
0: That is an amazing story. And your point about politicians and and public sometimes reacting not because of science but because of Bambi-like attitude or Disney-like attitude towards animals. And that is actually one reason when I was uh, younger I had aspirations to uh, perhaps go into wildlife management. And two things really stopped me from doing that. One was, and probably the most concrete, was uh, organic chemistry. And I didn't get along too well, and uh, the other thing though was a realization that um it would be a tough battle and I guess i wasn't as resilient as you are and and when I realized that it really wasn 't the science, it was the politicians that would need to be convinced to change things, so I guess my path was doing what i'm doing now, but uh that's an amazing story. You have a program called the Ambassador Program. Can you explain what that is and where you're going to be this year?
1: Yeah, well, all that simply happened is, you know, you got to remember I grew up in the woods. I hate animals in cages. I thought it was disgusting going to a zoo. And one day I came across a wolf that was already in a cage. It needed help. This was just miserable. So we were naive and we said, okay, let's do it. And if you do anything, do it right. So I got a federal license and a state license. And the next thing I found is everybody I met either was horrified of this animal and they wanted to kill it, that was their first comment, or they went, oh, it's so beautiful, where can I buy one? And I just couldn't believe it. That is all that Americans seem to know, either kill it or buy it. So what I quickly learned, and a third grade teacher helped me do this, she had studied wolves for two and a half months. She had all the books, the videos, the lectures, the pictures, And she saw the wolf down at the local vet office. The wolf was tranquilized. It had an injury was being fixed. And she got so excited. Oh, my God, would you bring your wolf to school? Would you bring your wolf to school? And very naively, I didn't think much about it. I took the day off work. And a couple weeks later, we arranged the time, and when I walked the wolf into this teacher's classroom, guess who hyperventilated the most? The teacher? Yeah. Her eyes got scared. Now, she knew that wolves nursed Romulus and Rima. She had all the stories. She knew they didn't attack people. Yet, when she was face-to-face with one that was not tranquilized, one that was walking on its own power, the wolf leapt right up to the teacher, rammed its nose on her nose to, you could say, shake her hand, look at her, say hi. And all of a sudden, she got this big smile across her face. She stopped shaking and being scared. She looked at those eyes of the wolf and went, oh, my God, that thing is incredibly intelligent. And it knows how I feel, doesn't it? And I was like, Yes. The wolf walked around the class for maybe 20 minutes at most. Some of the kids might have had a chance to touch it for a moment because wild animals don't like to be touched. We don't want to go in and just let people pet them. But what we found is that the kids in 20 minutes getting to look and see eye to eye, when I walked out of the class, here's what the teacher told me. She, of course, thanked me for bringing the wolf to school, and then she told me I had just wasted two and a half months of her life. She said that those kids learned more, got more engaged in 20 minutes meeting that wolf than she could get across in two and a half months of all the books and lectures combined. And that's what we found. The next day, I took the day off work to go to the fourth grade class. And the next day, I took the day off work to see the principal's class. And literally by 1988, schools, museums, and universities think my wife and I have nothing better to do with our lives. So that's kind of how the ambassador program started for us. And then, you know, like I said, I got kind of mad at politicians. I didn't think they were doing anything right. So I charged the wolf right into the federal building in downtown Denver. I met the director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. I met the directors of the National Park Service, the Forest Service, the BLM. And you know what was kind of interesting that I didn't expect? These guys knew more about wolves than I did. They had all the facts. They had all the information. They had never met one, and they really did know what it was like. And of course, when they got to meet one, that really set it in. They were just as frustrated over the politics as I was. And uh, that's the next thing that I started learning is I don't care where you go. You just need to let people have a chance to meet a wolf. So at this point, the ambassador program has been requested by folks in over 30 states. We've met over a million people. And you know what's really fascinating? I've taken wolves right into some of the cattlemen's and some of the hunter organizations. And we just tell them, just get all the guys that think the only good wolf is a dead wolf. We want you to give us your word that you will protect us, not hurt us. And usually they will do that. And when I walk the wolf into a room with a whole bunch of hot-headed ranchers, guess who the wolf picks out? The most obnoxious rancher. When I take the wolf into a classroom in New York City, I've done this several times. I've walked into classrooms of high school kids where I've had the local street gangs show up. The street gangs run the whole show out there. They're rude, they're obnoxious. You cannot get a word in to save your life. The teachers get mad, they get the principal, the police come, you can't get the kids out of the room. So I finally gave up, and I walked the wolf into this classroom. The wolf picked out the gang leader instantly, walked straight to him. And when the wolf did this to this hot-headed rancher up in Idaho, and the wolf did it to this, you know, tough gang member out in New York, in each case, the individual sat perfectly still. They first got scared, looked at the guy, and the guy all of a sudden starts smiling starts scratching the wolf on the chin, looks at those yellow eyes and goes, oh my God, this thing is intelligent. And the gang member at the school, he didn't know what to do. So I just said, sit still. He's like, okay. <laughs> I said, put your hand out. The wolf sniffed his hand, rammed its nose on his nose. Of course, everybody in school held their breath. They thought the wolf was going to eat the gang member. And all the wolf did is lick him on the face, looked at his eyes, and this kid starts smiling. And believe me, these are kids that have had such a rough life, they don't smile. They don't know how to sit quiet. They've never had a good example. And uh, what was really fascinating to me is after the wolf said hi to these people, very, very, you know, tense situations. The whole room was tense. You could just feel the energy of these people was not good. And the wolf walked up, kind of calmed them, sniffed them, looked at them. And then the wolf simply, they don't need to be petted like a dog, It laid on the floor and went to sleep. And do you know what these kids did for over 30 minutes? Sat quiet and watched the wolf sleep. When I did it up in Idaho, the ranchers, they stopped their arguing. They stopped their fighting with everybody, even with each other. And they sat there and they watched that wolf intently. The wolf laid down on the floor, started chewing on a bone. And what they did is they started talking reasonably. Pretty soon, the gang in the city, they started raising their hand and asking polite questions. That went on for over 45 minutes. That's the amazing, Kent. The we're, rancher we're, sat still, and what they did is I said, have you ever seen a wild animal before? And the kids said no. So, and quick, and I realized we got to go, letting people meet an animal like this is the best thing we've ever done with any of the time we've offered.
0: Where are you going to be this summer with your ambassador program?
1: We have so many people that come to the refuge that we spend all of our summer working with the wolves and visitors. And if anybody would like to find Mission Wolf, they can find us online. Uh, We don't charge any money. We gave the wolves the land's name, and we don't ask people money to come see them. If you want to come out and visit, we'll give you a free tour. If you want to volunteer, we'll put you to work. And then this fall, we're going to load up a couple of the very brave wolves. There's very few wolves that will do this. And we're going to head back out to New England. And we're working really hard to try to see if we can get a stronghold of wolves to recover the New England area. It's going to take people out there to help. Out west, wolves can come back on their own. It's called natural recovery. But in the New England states, it's going to take a more uh, people-involved approach.
0: I do want to ask you this question, and I ask all my guests, with all the human misery and suffering in the world, how can you justify spending time, money, and resources advocating for animals?
1: Oh, piece of cake. I have worked with so many people and so many facilities now that we have learned that humans will not give another human an iota drop of respect. I mean, you almost have to force it down these kids. What we have learned is when you take a group of kids that have been abused and neglected, They will not sit still for a leader. They will not listen to their teacher. They don't trust their counselors. They have no reason to trust their adopted families. But when that wolf walks in the room, it makes them sit quiet. When the kids get a chance to connect with the wolf, we've had this example. The kids go back home, and the parents call me up. The therapists call me up. The teachers call me up. Oh, my gosh, what did you do to that person? They have become cooperative, they've become respectful, they've stopped their fighting, they've graduated from their program, this changed their life. I get this all the time, and that's why I think that if we want to get people to take better care of people, we better teach people to take care of animals first. If you well, can't take care of an animal, you'll never take care of a human.
0: That's great advice. And if I wanted to volunteer, first of all, do you, you take volunteers, right, on your staff? And what skills we, are you looking for and what time durations do these yeah,
1: use? Uh, as one reporter said it best, it's a world of labor-illiterate humans. We have so many people today, especially so many of our youth, that have never swung a hammer, never used a screwdriver. They have no idea how to create things with their hands. And it's because we've lost it in our schools. So here's what we say, is if you can find Mission Wolf, that's all it takes. We will give you a tour. You've got to remember, it's 15 miles of rough dirt road. There's no signs, so you've got to be a navigator. And that really makes people dedicated to find us. After the tour, if you don't scare the wolves we'll let you camp for free. Bring your tent, your sleeping bag, you can wake up with the wolves howling, and as long as you don't bother the wolves, you can just hang out, twiddle your thumbs, and do what you want. If you don't scare the volunteers, well, we'll put you to work. And if you don't know anything, we'll teach you how to use a shovel, use a hammer, or whatever we're working on. We also use volunteers to feed the wolves, and that's one of the most exciting times is we feed out over a 1,000 pounds of raw meat every week. It's a lot of work to cut up the meat, but the wolves are hanging on the fence going, hurry up, get that food over here. And uh, it really instills visitors. Now, here's the clinch. If you survive two weeks, we'll provide you food. And if you put in two months, you get a teepee to live in. And so far today, Mission Wolf has operated keeping two people on site 24-7 to simply protect the wolves from people with volunteers. And, you know, the unique thing is when you get people that do stuff because they enjoy doing it, they do twice the job than you could pay anyone to do. So as far as skills, we need carpenters, we need people that know how to work with metal We need butchers, people that know how to work and process food. And we need really good educators. We have so many people that want to meet the wolves. We're turning down many, many visitors and many youth groups. So if you like to uh, talk to other people, you can come be an educator. And if you don't like to talk to people but you know how to do something with your hands, we'll put you to work building something.
0: How do I get more information about Mission Wolf?
1: Probably the best way is today through the Internet. If you go online to uh, missionwolf.org, you'll find information on our map, how to find us. If anybody uh, that can't get out to the refuge, and I know we're a long ways, and it's a pretty rough road out here, and right now we're kind of snowed in, so you better bring a good pair of skis or snowshoes if you want to get up here. We have a membership program where people can adopt a wolf. Uh, You don't get to take the wolf home. You get a picture of the wolf, and the wolf gets a belly full of food. So that's how we feed the animals. I think our website, and of course, they can always write us a letter, and we'll be glad to send out some information.
0: Well, Kent, you know, this has been so interesting. We've run out of time, and I want to thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, I appreciate your time and your interest in doing this. And someday in the future, there's some behavior that we've learned, how wolves communicate using mimicry and mirroring and ignoring and what play behavior is. Oh, my gosh, we could have a whole other program on teaching how humans can learn to play like wild animals. It would sure help us uh, get along as a society. But I appreciate your time and your interest, and I hope people today uh, enjoyed hearing a little bit more about Mission
0: Wolf. Well, I'm sure they did, and uh, I'll take you up on that. We'll get back and contact you, and later this year, uh, if you have time, we'll have you uh, come on and tell us about playing with wolves. That would be uh, great. If you're ever in the Chicago area, let me know because I know I have a granddaughter who would just love to go wherever you're going with your ambassador program in the area and uh, and see those wolves. She's 11 and uh, she really is an animal advocate. There's
1: a program in Chicago that works with Mission Wolf for 11-year-olds. It's called Road West Traveled and they bring the kids out and they live with us for 10 days pretty amazing group, but that's based right in Chicago. Maybe someday she can come out on that, but yeah, we would love to do that, and uh, we'll try to get you more information.
0: Well, thank you, and Max A. Pooch gives you five big tail-wagging wolves for the work you've been doing, and you're one of his uh, favorite awesome animal advocates. And again, keep us posted on any news from Mission Wolf.
1: Okay, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye.
0: We want to thank you, our listeners, for spending your valuable time with us, You're all fantastic, and we hope you tell your friends about Awesome Animal Advocates. And a special thanks to Mark Winter, co-founder and executive producer of Pet Life Radio, and our sponsors for making this episode of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates possible. I'm Keith Sanderson, host and creator of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates, saying thank you to all those animal advocates who work so hard on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. Max A. Pooch gives them five big tail wagging woofs.